This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Attention powerhouse politics listeners, just a note that ABC News and 538 will be bringing you daily coverage of the convention all week long. Check out 538's politics podcast for instant reactions of the night of and start here for a morning briefing of what went down. You can find the links to those shows in the episode description. And of course, Powerhouse Politics will be here all week long. So subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe, and listen here for analysis and in-depth interviews. Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. Rick, it is Republican convention week. Uh, looking ahead to this, uh, seeing what the president's been saying, uh, you know, my my take going into this is that this, particularly the president's speech, the main speech on Thursday, is going to be dark. Uh, the president has been warning. He actually, in Scranton the other day, he compared himself to a wall. Like the wall, you know, this is the guy that wanted to build a wall. Uh, a wall between the American dream and the complete and total destruction of the greatest country on earth. I think that this convention speech may just make American carnage look like mourning in America. We should note that the Republicans are telling us it's going to be optimistic. I uh, know they, they, they are. That's the, that's the pre-spin. That. Yeah. That's the pre-spin. And, you know, look, uh, the president, um, even this morning, is being renominated without any objection. A grand total of one delegate went to someone other than Donald Trump through this. Bill Weld, right? Bill, Bill Weld is one Bill Weld delegate. And uh, Mike Pence is being renominated by acclamation. There is none of that internal dissent, none of that. Uh, none of the, the typical convention storylines, even less than the Democrats last week, and the Democrats had very little of it. This is this is uh, this is Donald Trump's party, and that's sort of the point. This this convention is a lot more about Donald Trump than it is about the Republican Party. Um, it's also more of a convention than the Democrats had last week because there are in person components to it. Um, there's going to be a whole lot of Trump on all four nights. We're told of this convention, a celebration of Trumpism. But I, I'm kind of with you, John, that I don't see the the morning in America type of optimism uh, uh, emanating from the president's rhetoric. It is it has become quite apocalyptic, uh, and and an almost a, almost a fitting counter to what we heard last week with all the talk about voting like your life depends on it, uh, and these these decisions that will uh, define democracy and define generations of Americans moving forward. It's not like either side has needed much prodding to up the stakes of this of this election. And if you remember. Uh, the president broke a record four years ago in Cleveland with the longest acceptance speech in the history of acceptance speech, at least of the television era. Uh, but but let's let's if you don't mind, Rick, before we get to our guest, and we're going to be talking to, uh, to to Governor Christie in just just a few minutes. But let's let's revisit for a moment uh, what the president said four years ago. I want to start just with the, the the line that we all probably remember the best. Nobody knows the system better than me. (laughs) 
which is why I alone can fix it. I always thought that line was kind of, you know, it was notable because he was saying I alone, which obviously is what got most of the attention. But the first part of it, uh, nobody knows the system better than me. It's kind of funny because, <laughs> you know, you, uh, the, the one thing that he had going for him into that thing is that he would he would become the first president with z- exactly zero government experience. <laughs> never in Which the was, military, never in government, but he knew the system better than But anybody. that was the point, John, as you remember, that, that was about how easy it was to buy politicians. Yeah, That's why yeah, he had yeah, given exactly. money to Hillary is because he was crooked Hillary and he knew how to, how to work it and he could fix it now. And yeah. that is, it's remembered and I think remembered rightly um, and, and, and the other thing we remember it for is, of course, the the, the cheering, uh, which we're not going to get this year. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's like so, another era. So, so, but 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 just if you if you listen to the speech, and, and I just want to focus on one aspect of it, which was quite prominent, right near the top of the speech, and 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 was a theme that ran through it all. This was a law and order speech, um, and and I want you to listen to this, thinking about today but realizing that this speech was four years ago. So here was Donald Trump on the crisis gripping our nation. Our convention occurs at a moment of crisis for our nation. The attacks on our police and the terrorism of our cities threaten our very way of life. Any politician who does not grasp this danger is not fit to lead our country. So, so Rick, uh, it's hard to it's hard to think that the violence gripping our cities, uh, the attacks on our police, as he is saying, um, I mean, that sounds like Donald Trump in twenty twenty. Uh, the, the words were said in twenty sixteen. But let me play one more clip from the speech. Americans watching this address tonight have seen the recent images of violence in our streets and the chaos in our communities. Many have witnessed this violence personally. Some have even been its victims. I have a message for all of you. The crime and violence that today afflicts our nation will soon, and I mean very soon, come to an end. Beginning on January 20th of 2017, safety will be restored. Okay, now, even if you accept his analysis of what the crisis is, what the nature of the problem is, and all of that, that is not a promise that has been kept. It's almost like, it's almost like a prophecy, right? I mean, it, it, listen to it now, it's, it's, it's almost uncanny. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really something else. Now, of course... Uh, He'll, I think we'll hear the theme again, but it'll be blamed on Democrats. Uh, you know, the, the, the violence that, uh, that, that, that we're dealing with in our democratic cities, um, you know, it's the democratic mayors, it's the democratic governors, but I mean, I don't know, it's going to be interesting. I, so so that's, that's, that's the context. That's the context. Now, did you um, happen to catch this little bit of news that we, that we broke uh, over the weekend, which I think is just kind of a, kind of a, a fun little item? <laughs> <laughs> the um, 
Did you see who's who is overseeing the uh, the, the the speech writing operation? I mean, basically working on having his hand in virtually every speech uh, in this convention, and, and I'm told taking a direct lead in drafting uh, the speeches of, of at least two Trumps, Donald Jr. and yeah, Tiffany. This you just can't make it up, John. You broke the news. You tell us. You tell us who it is. Cliff Sims. Cliff Sims, who was a uh, served in the uh, in the Trump White House for roughly 500 days and left to write a tell-all book called Team of Vipers, <laughs> which uh, portrayed the, the West Wing in the White House, I, I would argue quite accurately. And it's a, it's a, it's, the book is a good read, um, but, but goes in chapter and verse about the infighting and the, and the self-dealing and the conniving of the president's top advisors. And uh, it was one that was not received well uh, in the White House, obviously. The president attacked the book. Uh, accused, uh, called Sims basically a you know a low level person that he barely knew, and that and and said that he made up a whole bunch of stories. It's a book of fiction, um, and then Sims actually sued the president personally. Sued the president uh, because the uh, through the campaign he said that the president was trying to stop uh, the book by enforcing uh, a non disclosure agreement. And he accused the president of trying to infringe on his uh, First Amendment rights. Now, the I, I found out about this from you know some others that were working for some of the people speaking over this over this week. <laughs> we're kind of surprised. I dug into it um, and um, uh, found out. In fact, uh, Sims has been on Team Trump now for a while. I mean, the, the bygones are bygones. Don Donald Trump Jr. gave me a very glowing quote about about how much of a supporter uh, and strong supporter Sims has been of the president. I got another quote from Rick Grinnell praising Sims uh, and, and saying that Sims helped him in his confirmation hearing, which I did not know. Um, and, uh, and it's important to point out that Sims' book, as, as brutal a description of the Trump White House as it was, he was clearly, even in the book, admiring the president himself and basically making the case that he's ill-served by the people around him. Uh, but he's back. He's back. And this is a pretty important role, as far as I can tell. Uh, you'd think it's a big one. Uh, it is his convention, and it's all over there. Uh, it, that, that's a remarkable uh, factoid. He uh, gets lost in the blur of news uh, around everything. But, you know, the Trump team has never been a, a huge team. It's never been um, a particularly well-oiled machine. Um, you'll remember that convention from four years ago was a um, I guess the technical term, well, I can't say on the radio, an S show or something like it was, it was, it was wild. It was, you know, the, the Ted Cruz's moment, Melania Trump and the plagiarism, um, the, 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 the near rioting among some delegates. It, it was, it was all over the place, uh, and a mess, but of course, none of it mattered because, uh, he left. He, from I, think he won, right? I, think, I think he won, right? I think he ended up winning. I think he ended up winning the, the, the presidency. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's a it's a remarkable thing. And I know we've got a, a great guest coming up. But John, you know, I I spent uh, Friday out on the uh, on the what counts as the campaign trail these days. It's the first time I've been anywhere near a presidential candidate. You went to Biden's basement? In, no, no, better than that. I went to the Hotel Dupont in downtown Wilmington, Delaware, where our colleagues, Robert Roberts nice and David Muir, it's beautiful, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, their first joint sit down. You saw it on 2020 last night. I, I was struck by a couple things about it. First, uh, this campaign, that campaign is so worried about COVID. It's a, it, it is just a uh, another level of concern uh, of, of sealing people off. I was watching the interview from the, the kitchen of the hotel where we had set up a little viewing area, didn't come in contact with the, with the candidates because the campaign was worried about any kind of contact like that. Uh, I thought you know, Biden and Harris were 
very, very strong. It was a it, 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 Biden after a, a convention speech where, which was one of the better ones that I think we've ever seen from him. I think you said as much, John. Uh, he was he was he was dialed into this interview, uh, and and I think you know to me at least setting up a contrast of message of vision that we could hear a lot about. So, you, you know, the whole interview is out there. I hope you all watch 2020. If you don't go, go watch it. But this is, this is toward the end of the interview when, when David Muir was asking just a, a little bit about how he might, might hope to, to heal the country. President's job is to heal, to heal. This country needs healing. I'll be a president who tells the truth, who takes responsibility and who in fact invites the opposition to come to the Oval Office and settle problems together. So, look, these aren't controversial uh, sentiments. Uh, and in fact, that was one big theme of much of the, much of the week that was hitting um, similar sentiments from the, from the stage. But in the age of Trump, it sounds different. And um, it, 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 the hope in Biden world is that they can keep that. And it's not that they're running a positive campaign or, you know, clearly going to go wire to wire talking about sweetness and light. But that difference in tone of, of trying to unite, I'm interested to see if, if President Trump even attempts that this week, because that's not where he is the most naturally agile as a political being. Well, I mean, the president hasn't met with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi for ages um, and when he last met with her, as you remember, she walked out <laughs> so of the meeting. So, um, you know, I mean, this has not been a president who has invited the opposition to sit down in the Oval Office and, and, and solve problems together. He, I mean, there were a couple of moments where he did that. There was that brief Chuck and Nancy phase, if you remember, from, uh, from the fall of 2017. Um, there were, you know, they, they, they got a deal on the debt ceiling. They got, But, I mean, th th this is, those were exceptions that, proved the rule. Um, I, there's also a, a long, I think it's like some 5,000 word uh, piece in Politico that I, I, I would recommend everybody to take a look by Tim Alberta, a very, very smart analyst, uh, especially of all things Republican. He is, um, you know, he came to us uh, from like National Review, right? Isn't that where he was uh, uh, be, before... Um, before yeah, political he's a smart about of the Republican right? Party. He's got a very, it's a very savvy take on the, at the beginning of the so, 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 you know, he's somebody who comes from, from a bit of a conservative background himself, and, and this, is what, this is what he writes. Uh, uh, I'm going to just read, read one quote here, which I think is pretty, pretty good. Uh, it can now be safely said, as his term in the White House, first term in the White House draws toward closure, that Donald Trump's party is the very definition of a cult of personality. It stands for no special ideal. It possesses no organizing principle. It represents no detailed vision for governing. Filling the vacuum is a lazy, identity-based populism that draws from the lowest common denominator. Um, it's, uh, it, if it agitates the base, if it lights up a Fox News chyron, if it serves to alienate sturdy, real Americans from delicate coastal elites, then it's got a place in the grand old party. Um, it's... It's an interesting take. I mean, he's um, he he goes on, like I said, some five thousand words. Talks to uh, talks to a lot of people, and um, you know, tries to solve answer the question: What does the Republican Party, Donald Trump's Republican Party, what does it stand for? Can you gain any? Can you see any hints, uh, Rick, in terms of of, of the, uh, the 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 selection of speakers over the next four days? There's a lot of Trump. 
Um, you know, and I think that there's a lot of a lot of highlighting people that have been made famous or infamous during the Trump era, um, either through cable news or you know there's, there's just little little incidents along the way. Um, there are some rising stars. There are people that that um, the, the party would hope to showcase in a time like this. We may have some little previews of 2024, but it's not it's not like conventions that we've seen before. It, it is very very Trumpy from start to finish. All right, well, let's, let's go to the guy that can actually answer these questions for us. Let's go to friend of the podcast, ABC News analyst, former governor of New Jersey, former presidential candidate, Chris Christie. Governor Christie, thank you for joining us. Hey, fellas. Good to join you. What does this Republican Party stand for? Well, listen, the Republican Party still stands for much of what it has stood for um, during uh, a lot of the last decade or more, <clears throat> which is lower taxes, smaller government, um, except during time of crisis when it's needed to be made larger and, and, and more protective. Uh, it stands for um, trying to make sure that we have business development, job growth. Um, and, you know, there are some things that have changed under Donald Trump for certain. Um, trade has changed uh, significantly under Donald Trump, and his position on that is certainly different than the traditional uh, Republican position um, on trade um, and on foreign policy. It is a less interventionist foreign policy um, than certainly the policy of uh, George W. Bush 43, our last Republican president. But in the main, the Republican principles still remain uh, pretty much the same. I was listening to what you and Rick were talking about before that, and that's just a bunch of drivel from somebody who's never actually been, you know, in the party. Tim Albert is a good reporter. Uh, 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 listen, he may be a good reporter, but that doesn't make him a good analyst. It's two different well, things. Well, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I, I, okay, we, we we can have this debate, but I, I don't know how you can say that this is the party of, of smaller government, given given the absolute explosion uh, of, of of deficit spending under, well, under this well, president. Well, John, would you one have, thing, or it's hard to uh, you know, would you would you not had American John, institutions? Uh, you John, know. would you have not had the government um, grow in size in the midst of a once in a century global pandemic? That's I mean, the last five going, months. What about the last three years? No, nah, you know, John hasn't, you know, the, the, the fact is that the, the, the huge growth in government, the real huge growth in government has been over the last five months, certainly proportionally to what has happened in the last three years. So, uh, but, but let me ask you about the other thing we're hearing from the president. I suspect we will hear in his speech on Thursday, a real apocalyptic uh, description of of this of the stakes in this campaign and, and to be sure there was equally dark talk on the democratic side about what a trump re-election would win um but you know in addition to saying things like the only way that i can lose is if is if they steal the election uh he's also saying that uh that, that he actually used that we talked about this before you got on that that he, he compared himself to a wall this is what he did in scranton between the American dream and the complete and total destruction of the greatest country on earth. He is saying that a Joe Biden win will mean the complete and total destruction of America. I mean, I well, don't think I, that's where Chris Christie's coming from. No, well, listen, I think what he what he means is that um, we're going to turn into, the country's going to turn into a version of, you know, the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren view of the world, which is that government should become even larger um, take over the entire healthcare system, 
um, and, and take over sections of the economy that they've never had possession of before. Um, I, I think that is something that Republicans and, and most independents um, don't want to buy. And that's why you didn't hear Joe Biden saying anything, John, um, during his uh, convention last week, nor most of the other speakers about any specific policy positions. The reason for that is they know that their policy positions won't broadly sell to a general electorate. So what they did, and they did very well, I think, during their convention, was to emphasize Joe Biden, the man, as a good, decent, honest human being, which I found him to be over the 35 years that I've known him. Um, but he has completely sold his soul to get the nomination. Um, remember, this is the guy who, in the first Democratic primary debate, when asked, do you believe the border should be decriminalized, raised his hand, along with every other Democrat on that stage. Um, this is a guy who signed a 110-page you know, agreement with Bernie Sanders um, about how he would govern. Um, this is someone who's picked a running mate who was for Medicare for all, um, back and forth about it, but for Medicare for all, for the Green New Deal. This has become the party of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and AOC. And Joe Biden is merely the vessel, and certainly not the vessel they wanted, but the vessel that the Democratic primary electorate stuck them with um, to, to for them to pour their philosophy into, or if he's a funnel, um, to pour through. And I think that's what the president is trying to emphasize. And I think it's a valid uh, worry and concern. And as far as apocalypse, um, you know, I listened to Michelle Obama's speech last week, which I thought was very well executed, and her husband's speech to former president. Um, that described pretty much an apocalypse if Donald Trump is reelected. So if we're talking about apocalypse, um, as my uh, kids would say when they were in uh, their preteens, uh, they started it. We've seen a lot of messaging from the RNC and from Trump campaign officials saying to to expect an optimistic convention. I'm not sure I'm buying that yet, uh, Governor, but I, I uh, the thought that there's been a couple times now where President Trump's been asked to define his second term agenda, and he just has not had a crisp answer. Where does where does that fit into this? And do you expect this to be an optimistic week? I hope it's going to be a week where he lays out that agenda. I think that has been the single biggest failing of the Trump campaign so far. I said this in a memo to the president 60 days ago, that the two predominant themes of the memo that I sent him was one that you have to lay out a detailed vision for the next four years. And that's the way we turn this into a binary race, which is to contrast the Republican vision for the next four years versus the Democratic vision, because otherwise it will be a referendum on Donald Trump. And no incumbent wants the race to be a referendum on them purely. And that's whether you look at Ronald Reagan and his race in 1984, whether you look at Bill Clinton and his race in 1996, or whether you look at Barack Obama and his race in 2012, or George W. Bush and his race in 2004. It was always a contrast against what would replace them if they were put aside. Secondly, um, the, the, the other thing the Trump campaign you know, has failed on, in, in addition to laying out a detailed plan for the next four years, is you cannot run the 2016 campaign in 2020. Any campaign that runs the last campaign is a losing campaign. And so they have to do it differently this time. It has to be more optimistic um, and, and less dire. Um, it has to be one that um, talks about what they want to do and how they want to leave the country at the conclusion of their eight years in. And I think, quite frankly, that the Trump campaign has not done well 
on either of those fronts, and I'm hoping that's going to start to change. And Governor Christie, because we're in convention week, I, I, I'd like to talk a little bit your perspective on uh, on speaking at these conventions. You were the keynote speaker at uh, the 2012 convention, the Romney uh, the Romney convention, the Romney Ryan convention. People remember the empty chair, but I remember Chris Christie and that and, and that speech he gave, of course. And and you were featured last time. What what are the what are the differences that you've seen in how President Trump thinks about a convention both in 16 and now this virtual convention in 2020 versus the more traditional Republican approach that I, I would assume was the Romney campaign's approach to, to programming a convention. Uh, the Romney campaign was more controlling, um, as you might have expected. Um, you know, I had to have my draft of the keynote speech to the Romney people two weeks before the convention. Um, they reviewed it, um, literally changed two sentences um, in the speech, gave it back to me, um, but they got a chance to review it and also then watched me rehearse it. The high command of the Romney campaign watched me rehearse in a hotel near the site um, to also give me their input on my delivery of the speech. Um, so the Romney campaign was very controlling in that way. The Trump campaign, um, I was still polishing my speech the morning I gave it, um, that morning for that evening. Um, they only asked me for a transcript of the speech that afternoon and only so they could give the transcript out to the media. Um, I got no reaction on it at all until after it was delivered. Um, and then the reaction I got was directly from the candidate um, who called me on my cell phone as soon as I was done. Um, and so, you know, the Trump approach, now I don't know because I've not been intimately involved in the convention planning for 2020. Um, but, you know, uh, my guess is that it's it's fairly loose in terms of what people are going to be um, you know, able to say. Uh, I think that the president generally um, people know the kind of things he likes to hear um, and would want to hear. Uh, and they're going to craft their speeches in a way, I hope, that will provide some real information to the people who are listening, some encouragement to the people who are supporters um, and uh, and you know, a, a forward-looking vision for where they think the country should go. I mean, you are somebody who's, you know, been a political supporter of the president's, but I, but I know you're also a friend yeah. um, and, and, and friend with the first lady, friends with the president. You're, you know, it, it's, it's beyond the, you know, this is, this is not your transactional, you know, political relationship. You, 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 you have a relationship him with him that goes back before he was involved in politics. Um, so I'm wondering what you think, how you think he is reacting, truly reacting, not just what we see on his Twitter feed, uh, when he sees his sister, uh, uh, his sister secretly taped by his niece, uh, uh, saying, um, some really tough things about him. Um, and, and now we hear uh, that one of Melania's former friends, Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, has uh, supposedly uh, secretly taped conversations that she had with the First Lady, where the First Lady disparages uh, the President and his family uh, and his, his adult children. Um, how, I, I, you know, the President has said remarkably little about any of this, uh, from his niece's book to, to the to what we heard from his sister, and obviously we haven't heard anything yet on this Melania latest thing. How does how does he how does he react to this? What's, what's his true reaction? Well, a, a few things. I think first off, um, what Mary Trump did was reprehensible. 
I know Marianne Trump Barry very well. I know her just as well as I know the president. In fact, she was the person who introduced me to the president nearly 20 years ago. Um, And she is a smart, tough, accomplished woman in her own right, having nothing to do with her brother and everything to do. She was the first female uh, top assistant in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey in the 1970s, John, when that stuff didn't happen much. Uh, before Ronald Reagan put her on the district court bench and then Bill Clinton put her on the circuit court bench. Um, she's an incredibly accomplished woman. And and she's also very honest and direct. And I am confident that she's mortified um, that she was taped and those tapes were made public. I'm also confident that she's had very tough things to say directly to her brother over time. Um, she's the older sister. I, I've never known Judge Barry to mince words. I'm sure they're both upset that that became public. I think all of us who have close-knit families, um, you know, know that there are tough things said at times in families, sometimes out of anger and frustration, sometimes out of emotion, sometimes out of pure love. I think the president and his reaction to it, John, is pretty much what you see is what you get. When he says very little like that, I'm sure this hurt him, Um, you know. No one would like to hear that stuff be made public. It's one thing for your sister to say that to you privately and for you to have an argument about it. Um, it's a whole other thing for it to be public. And that's why I think what Mary Trump did was just reprehensible to Judge Barry. Forget about to the president. This is obviously a young woman who lost her father, who Marianne Barry um, was clearly trying to mentor in a family that had been torn apart by litigation over the grandfather's estate and all the rest of the things that we know. And while she's having these candid mentoring conversations with her niece, um, she's taping them and then using it for profit. Um, so I feel the person I feel worse for this morning, the worst for is Judge Barry, um, who I think was horribly used in this circumstance and is now being embarrassed publicly because um, she's now has greater notoriety because her brother is the president. Um, I hope that the things we're hearing about the tape recordings of the first lady are not true um, for the very same reasons. And, and Melania herself is an even more private person than, you know, judge Barry um, has been over time. So it's a shame. It's a distraction. I don't think the public quite frankly really cares about it, John. Um, I think they know there've been problems inside the Trump family. Um, That's been pretty well chronicled. And I, I don't think that's going to determine anybody's vote. The people who agree with what Judge Barry said on that tape are probably already decided not to vote for Donald Trump and vice versa. And I don't think anybody who's undecided at the moment will decide the race, will decide based upon these tapes or any tapes that may turn up of the of the first lady. All right. Governor Christie, it's, it's, always, uh, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. And I'm sure we'll be talking uh, every, every day this week, including I- on the broadcast. Absolutely. Looking forward to ABC News Live tonight and the network broadcast. And looking forward to being up there masking up with Rahm Emanuel. It's, it's, quite, it's quite fun. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Have all a right, great day, Gov- guys. Governor Christie, I appreciate it. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. But, Rick, we are here every day this week. So we will be back tomorrow uh, with, uh, with another special guest. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Susie Liu, Avery Miller, the entire Powerhouse Politics team.